I'm not sure when or even how I came across this, but I'm so glad I did, and I'm so glad I documented it because it is pure gold. It is an excerpt from a 1950 home economics book. The chapter title, Tips to Look After Your Husband. Uh, That's exactly what I want my high school daughter learning, by the way, in public school tips to look after her husband. But uh, bear with me on this. I promise we're going somewhere, but you need, trust me, in your life to have these. Tip number one, how to look after your husband. Have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal on time. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him. Most men are hungry when they come home. And the prospects of a good meal are part of the warm welcome needed. I concur. Tip two, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you will be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon in your head, in your hair. That makes more sense. Be fresh looking. You right? Come on, girl. Nothing says fresh like a ribbon. You know what I'm saying? The author continues, be a little more interesting. That's awesome. His boring day may need a lift from you. That's good. Tip three, how to take care of your husband, look after him. Clear away the clutter, run a dust cloth over the tables. Your husband will feel he has reached a haven of rest and order. Yes. Tip four, prepare the children. They are, and I quote, little treasures. And he would like to see them playing the part when he comes home. How many of y'all know that would be an Oscar-worthy part that they would be playing the part of Little Treasures? This is good. This is good stuff. Tip five, minimize all noise. Don't greet him with problems or complaints. Be happy to see him. That's what I'm talking about. Preach it. Be happy. Tip six, make him comfortable. Arrange his pillow. Offer to take off his shoes. Speak in a low, soft, soothing, and pleasant voice. And uh, if Laura spoke to me in a low, soft, soothing voice when I came home and said, Here, sit down. I've prepared your pillow. Please let me take off your shoes. I'm worried for my life. Like... I'm thinking, is she want to take off my shoes to beat me to death with them? Because there's no way I am going through with any of that. That would be terrifying to say the least. But I'll summarize the article, the rest of it, with the words of the wise theologian Bob Dylan. Times they are a-changing. You know, like that ain't happening anymore. But uh, here's why I wanted to share that with you. Not to say that any of those things should happen, but rather I wanted you to notice the emphasis that the author put on the wife to look forward to and to anticipate and prepare for her husband coming home. There's an expectation that she should have. In, in, in fact, the, the author concludes with these words, the goal of me writing this with these tips, they're to try and make your home a place of peace where your husband can renew himself in both body and spirit. Now, from 
a Christian perspective, I find that somewhat comical because I know that my wife can't provide me, nor should the expectation be that she should provide me a place of peace and spiritual renewal. That's what Jesus had to come to do. It's the whole point of Christmas. That's why I love Isaiah 9-6 when they called Jesus the Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. That's what Jesus came to do. Provide you peace. Give you counsel. You'll look in all of the world, and many of you have to find those things, and you can never find them apart from Jesus. It's not in the clothes you wear. It's not in the friends you have. Peace counsel is not in all of those worldly things that you've tried. It's only found in Jesus. But back to the article, the premise I think is good. I think we should desire to do nice things for the ones we love. Uh, But if serving our spouse is the only purpose in life, then life is of course going to be a struggle. In other words, the premise is good, it's just misplaced. So let me draw a different conclusion. Instead of having tips to look after our husband this year, how about some tips to look after ourselves? How about some pointers to prepare for the groom who is actually one day going to come back? Which if you're new to the whole church thing or new to the Bible thing, I know this will sound weird and I fully acknowledge that, but scripture makes it clear that that we, the, the church followers of Christ, we're actually the bride of Christ. And one day he will return, um, and we should adorn ourselves with a great anticipation. It is, of course, symbolic language. Jesus is not our actual husband. Okay, that would be super creepy. I get that. Uh, but, But prior to sin entering into the world, the one relationship that best communicated the love that God had would be that as a husband towards his bride or a father to his child. This is what God tries to paint the picture for us in the words of Scripture. There's no other relationship that fully communicates the love that God had for you and that he had to send his son to die for you. He loves you like a spouse. And our response to his love should be like the planning of a wedding. It should be like the bride looking forward to making sure everything is perfect for that day that she does, in fact, get married. We're planning for our Savior to come back and rescue us from death and destruction and pain. And I can't help but ask the obvious question of, are you doing that? Are you preparing your heart and your soul and your life looking forward to the day when Jesus breaks through the clouds and says, well done, good and faithful servant? Is your life reflective of that expectation and anticipation? It's an interesting parallel to draw, particularly at this time of year, because for thousands of years, the Jewish people were expecting a Savior to come and rescue them. This was due in large part because God made a promise to a guy named Abraham where he said, hey, Abe, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you land and you're going to have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky and you're going to be blessed to be a blessing to all of the world. And then for thousands of years, that never actually happened. 
God spoke through different prophets. He gave them clues on what to look for within this blessing. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that, that one of the clues we get is that this blessing is actually going to be a person. And this person is going to be a guy. And this guy is going to be a king. And his king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And there's hundreds of other prophecies all predicting this coming of a Savior. But when you look for thousands of years, often you overlook what's right in front of you. When you're looking for something for thousands of years and you just go through pace of life, there's no sign of a Savior, you can be lulled to sleep. You can start living complacently. To make matters worse, God just quit speaking for 400 years. Between Malachi and Matthew, no more prophets, no more speaking, just silence. Crickets. What are we waiting for, guys? Some, some of you might have come today feeling that exact same way. That God's not speaking anymore. That God's off some far away place and and you wish He'd show up. You wish He'd talk to you, but you can't feel it. You you believe in Jesus. You, You fully expect Him to return someday. But this idea that you're somehow supposed to be living in preparation for Him and an expectation for Him, it's hard to have faith when life's so frantic. You know, it's hard to believe Jesus is coming back when you're so busy. And you got bills to pay and all these things. How am I supposed to look forward to all this? And so what I thought would be helpful for us this Christmas season is to take a look at some folks who were in the same kind of quandary. They were going through life, just doing it. And then all of a sudden, this little boy is born in Bethlehem. And that's supposed to change everything. And, and it does. But the reason I wanted us to look at responses is because the night that Jesus is born, an angel shows up to some shepherds and say, hey, I'm bringing you good news that's going to be great joy for all people. But in my experience, that doesn't seem to line up because I've met a lot of people who don't have great joy at all. And so if great joy is for all people, how come I only see it in some people? And we can look at the responses that each one of these characters within the Bible story had, and I think we can draw some parallels and conclusions uh, to match our lives. And so these weeks together, we're trying to discern, is that our attitude? Like, do we have great joy? Is this good news in our lives? Is that making a difference? How we live day in and day out? Are we marked by that? If people look to our lives, would they describe it as having great joy? And if you missed any of the previous messages, you can check them out online. But today we're going to look at a couple individuals that are often overlooked at this Christmas time. In fact, in my brief yet very scientific, highly scientific survey of asking a few of you last week, you ever heard of Anna and Simeon? And uh, a number of people said, no, who are they? Do they come to church here? And I was like, this is worse than I thought. The people have no idea who... And a seminar. So, uh, no, they are characters within this Christmas story. They've been completely abandoned. To be fair to the people I asked, you know, there's no Christmas carols sung about them. Anna and Simeon are never portrayed in the nativity scene. They're never pictured in your Christmas cards. But they're vitally important to this idea of living a joyful, expectant, a compelling life. It's a message I'm calling Christmas Preppers. Come on, somebody. Deck the halls with canned food and ammunition. That's how that works. Christmas Preppers bottled water. Uh, If you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it. You need to meet me in Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. 
you should know that in the 20 verses prior and even the chapter before, we get a brief look at the birth of Jesus and how it all came to be. We get the story of how an angel visits Mary and says the Holy Spirit is going to fill you with his presence. It's going to be a miracle because you're going to conceive a son. And Joseph's like, yeah, right. And the angel visits Joseph and he's like, no, this is actually what's going to happen. And we get a little bit of the story of Caesar. Caesar needs a sense because daddy's a little short on Christmas cash this year. And so I need a little tax revenue. And so he generates this census and Joseph and Mary, they have to travel all the way to Bethlehem over a hundred miles while she's nine months pregnant in order to register for this census. And you know the rest, the shepherds, the manger, it all happens. Uh, And in verse 21, Jesus is eight days old. How do we know? On the eighth day, When it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites, this is something separate, required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Pause. So we know from this law of the Lord, the law of Moses, the first five books of your Bible is called the law. We actually know that this purification ceremony, the rites, it took place 40 days after the firstborn son uh, is, is given birth. And we know that most good Jewish families would offer a lamb to be sacrificed at this ceremony. Except we just read here that Mary and Joseph, they didn't offer a lamb. They offered a couple birds. Uh, It was a sacrifice that was not expected, yet it was permitted by law. See, Jesus, his mother and father, though devoted, uh, devoted to God and devout in faith, they cannot afford a lamb. So they have to sacrifice a dove. Why do I point that out? Because it should teach you that ultimately it's not about the size of the gift. It's about the heart of the sacrifice. It's the heart of the worshiper and the degree to which they sacrifice that determines whether or not a gift is acceptable and appropriate in the sight of God. People often complain about churches. They say, uh, churches, they just want my money. Well, that might be true some places. It's not true here. I'm not interested in your money, but I will tell you that Scripture does make it clear that you should give back to God. It's all, all His to begin with. And God asks you to give a tithe or a tenth. So a tenth is what is uh, permitted, but a sacrifice is what's expected. Because Scripture also says you should decide in your heart what you should give, not under compulsion. So your gift should challenge you. But moving on, it's not the point of the message. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, this promise that God had made to Abraham, and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, you see in a pattern, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Salvation is not just for Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Anytime you read the Bible, you should put yourself in the, the context of what you're reading. So imagine you coming to church and, and uh, wanting to offer your son in a, a normal child dedication service, and up comes this old man, and he just grabs the baby out of your hands, and I like to picture Simeon like the Lion King, and he holds him up, and he says, and he's holding him up, and... Uh, you're standing there and you're like, what in the world? And Mary's kind of just like smiling, like what's happening? And he starts prophesying over your child. Can you imagine this? And you start elbowing your husband, like get the child back. And this like, this is crazy. And so uh, he's like, hold on, let's see how this plays out. You know, at least that's how I would have been. Like, what is happening right here? Let's just see where this goes. And, um, but then he hands your baby back and he says, oh, by the way, uh, this ends bad for you too, Mary. Uh, congratulations. You know, Merry Christmas. And then he leaves. Like, what in the world? There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of that guy there, of the tribe of Asher. I don't even, I'm not even going to try. Of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. So if you're 84, you're very old, according to the Bible. Okay, I would agree for the most part. She never left the temple, but anybody 84, just I apologize if I hurt your feelings. You're very old. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them. At that very moment, after Simeon prophesied, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their hometown of Nazareth. God, thank you for your word. We just ask you now to uh, fill us with your spirit as you did with Anna and Simeon. God, we're offering you thanks now as Anna and Simeon did. We are imploring you to open our eyes to what you would have us see. Help us leave here changed, one step closer to you based on your word. And God, we come with heavy hearts. Apparently, somebody more holy than myself has been praying against my snow, and you've been listening to them. I pray now that you do what makes the most logical sense. Rapture them into heaven because of their holiness and give us the wet, heavy, snowman building snow for a white Christmas that we all long for and pray for 
And with unified hearts, everyone said, Amen. Yes. It all started in a zoology class in 1934. Students were seated alphabetically in the tiered lecture hall. So John Henderson sat directly behind Charlotte Curtis. This was a fortuitous arrangement because five years later, the two were married. Today, John is 106. Charlotte is 105. They've been married 80 years. I read about their story in the news because they were recently given the title of longest living married, longest married still living couple in the United States. 80 years of waking up to the same face every single day. They asked uh, them the secret to this longevity, and they said the secret is in living in moderation. Their neighbors at the retirement village said the secret is they never had kids. Both are probably accurate. Living in moderation, never having children, it leads to longer life, probably. Uh, but age, growing old, this idea of doing it with another person, I mean, this all sounds very weird. As a kid, did you not think your parents were super old? Uh, my son's reading a little book about the Chicago fire, and he said, were you still alive then? I was like, that's 1870. What are you talking? No, I wasn't alive. He said, were Mimi and Papa and I alive? I was like, maybe. I don't know. You have to ask. <laughs> We're still so old. Uh and but you think and now I'm the age that my parents were when you know I was young and thought they were old and I was like I don't feel old this is not how it is supposed to be at all by the way if you see my wife today make sure you wish her a happy birthday she turned 36 yesterday speaking of old this gal man she's like a fine wine but better with age don't tell her I said that even as a parent, though, growing old, it uh, is weird because uh, your kids are young and you think, man, can you just grow up already? And then they grow up and you're like, can we go back to when you were young? Because this went by way too fast. And I'm sure many of you are well, you know, well older than me. You're like, you have no idea, buddy. It gets way worse than this. I was talking to a guy and he said, I knew I was old when I realized my back went out more than I did. You know, like that's a good you know, perspective on it all. Thank you for that. Uh, But I think age is an important consideration for our conversation about Christmas cheer because Anna and Simeon are both very old. Well, we know Anna is old. It, It said that in the text. We can infer that Simeon was old because it says that he was prepared to die since he met Jesus. So it's logical to conclude that he was also, in fact, old. Yet despite their age, what are they doing? Not just waiting to die not basking in retirement. No, they're, they're looking for God. They're praising God. They're living righteous and devout lives, praying and fasting and spending time in the temple. Here's the lesson for us. Growing old has nothing to do with giving up. Jot that down if you're taking notes. Growing old has nothing to do with giving up. Oh, sure, you might not be able to do physically the things that you once were able to do, but God still has a plan and purpose for you. It could be as simple as praying and fasting, as Anna and Simeon did. 
And it's also one of the reasons we like to do praying and fasting every January to set yourself up for success in that year ahead. Uh, but I should also point out something more because Titus 2.4 says when you're old, the old women, you should train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely, to live pure lives, to work in their homes if need be, to do good, to be submissive to their husbands. They'll not bring shame on the Word of God, old women. Young, uh, old men, in the same way, encourage young men to live wisely. You yourself, old men, should be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of the teaching in the Bible. It's unfortunate because for whatever reason, this training and modeling, this teaching, this living a life of integrity, it's very rare. Perhaps it's because of insecurity on both sides. The old folks want to help train and and lead and and serve well. The, The young folks, they just don't want to listen. But I know it's also because some old people want to punt on their responsibility to be leaders and trainers and equippers and live a life of integrity. They want to go out and have fun like they used to, so they don't want to be living this life. I was listening to a children's pastor at a conference, and she was telling an interesting story. She was talking about how there's some older women in her church, and she asked them to volunteer in the kids' ministry, and they told her, we've done our time. Like, our kids are grown. We don't need to be back there. She was naturally a bit taken back by that response, as I would be as well, but her point was a good one, because she asked rhetorically, can you imagine standing before God when he asks about your time serving a local church, you respond with, I didn't do that, because I did my time. Like, you're some kind of prisoner on cell block B. It's worth thinking about. No, older men older women, God has not left you here simply to be a butt in a seat. And you're not relegated off to some prayer closet. If you're still alive and breathing and on this planet today, God still has something for you to do. Can I hear a better amen somebody? Because Job 12.12 says, wisdom belongs to the aged and understanding to the old. So when you put those two texts together, Job and Titus, you see that We need you, old folks, serving, leading, modeling. One of the things that makes me nervous about the age that we live in because of automation, because of pace of life, what makes me nervous is how much culture we lose every time an older saint passes away. I was thinking about as a kid, my dad's grandma was still alive. And the only thing I can really remember is going to visit her at her trailer home out in the country. And she would make uh, the best biscuits you have ever put in your mouth at any point in time. Forget KFC. Are you kidding me? That's garbage compared to what she would make. And my dad would tell me later on that she was blind. 
And so the fact that she could prepare the biscuits at all was just something amazing. She had done it so many times. She didn't need to look at a, a measuring cup. She didn't need a tablespoon. She didn't even need to set the oven. I guess she just did it by fire. Who even knows what had happened with that? And cast iron. And she just knew everything. And she could put it all together. And when they came piping hot out of the oven and you tasted it, you'd say, this is a miracle from God. And as a family, we took all that for granted because now that she's gone, nobody has the recipe. And how many other recipes have been lost because the older women didn't pass on their cooking secrets to the next generation? How many little life hacks have we lost because we never got them recorded and the older folks didn't pass them on? Little hacks like uh, you're supposed to roll up your cinnamon roll dough and and then cut it with dental floss cooking hack get the cinnamon flavor you know not the mint the cin- or the you know, wax. Uh, cooking hack uh, you, you're so you can you, I didn't know this you can replace applesauce for eggs in your baking do you know that helpful tip you run out of eggs applesauce you should soak your egg in white vinegar prior to poaching it which is the only way to eat an egg by the way poached Y'all had poached eggs before? Don't come at me with scrambled eggs, okay? That is for barbarians and burritos, okay? I will give you burritos with a scrambled egg. But a poached egg, that, I mean, there's no comparison. Uh, You look back 200 years ago, everybody knew how to gut a deer or, uh, you know, chop up any sort of meat cut. Everybody knew how to start a fire. 100 years ago, everybody knew how to butcher a chicken because that was the only way to go buy a chicken. Pluck it and do it yourself. And I just read an article online that said millennials didn't even know chickens don't come skinless and breastless, like skinless and boneless, because that's the only way they bought it in the store. Like, what? Like, they interviewed one kid, and they were like, where on the chicken do we find the chicken nugget? Like, are you serious? It's the whole thing. Like, how, how do you want me to break this down for you? This is what life is. And old folks, don't let your wisdom die with you. Growing old has nothing to do with giving up. You have a lot to offer us. And young people, if I could challenge you for a little bit, you don't know everything, Okay. So maybe take a little bit of the gray-haired advice when it's offered to you. To put this in perspective, imagine if the people around Simea and Anna listened to them. Their lives would have looked a little bit different, wouldn't it? Because they would have recognized the Messiah as Simeon and Anna did when Jesus showed up to the temple 40 days after his birth. Which leads me to point two. God often confirms his plans in his people. God, almost every time in Scripture, when He wants to confirm His plans, He does it through His people. You ever wondered, should I go through with this? Is this the best decision for my life? Is this the way God is leading me? Have you ever asked yourself the question, is this God's will? Well, God will give you your answer most often in somebody else. God will confirm that thing that you're looking for in His people. We know Simeon was righteous and devout. Our text told us that. But it also says we, that he was led by the Spirit three times in three verses, verses. It talks about the Holy Spirit. We can infer that Anna too was led by the Spirit or it wouldn't have referred to her as a prophet or a prophetess, depending on your translation. So God uses 
Anna and Simeon. It's no accident that he chooses them to authenticate that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And it begs the question in your life, who are you listening to? Are they led by the Spirit? Are they living righteous and devout lives? When you're going through a crisis, when you have something difficult that's happened to you, who do you turn to to advise? Do they have a track record of leading their life well and listening to God? Because that's the people that you need to be looking to and listening to. Notice verse 25. Simeon's waiting on the consolation of Israel, waiting on this promise that God had made thousands of years before. Verse 30, he recognizes the salvation that Jesus came to bring. That's important. We'll come back to that. Verse 32, he gives God all of the glory for that to happen. Verse 38, Anna joins in thanking God, speaking about this redemption to who? Everybody that she could talk to. All the people, the text said, that she came, comes into contact with. We can't fully comprehend the gravity of the situation that these two people have found themselves in and that they're confessing out loud in these moments. For thousands of years of temple worship, people offered sacrifices following this law of Moses. And then these two people show up and they nullify this law of Moses by saying, no, Jesus is in fact the one who's going to offer the ultimate sacrifice. He's our sacrificial lamb. We don't need a sacrifice goats and sheep anymore. Jesus is the one who's going to take away the sin of the world. We don't have to follow the law anymore. This is about God becoming flesh, showing up, bridging the gap that is sin, that's separating us from God. Jesus steps into that and offers a way for us to be made right with God. It's an unfathomable claim. The fact that it isn't just for Jewish people, that it's for all the world, this is unheard of, unspeakable. Same claim that got Jesus killed, by the way, that his sacrifice was for the world not just for the Jewish people. So let me try and tie this together by raising the question I asked you at the beginning. Are you living with the expectation that Jesus is who he said he was? God become flesh? Make no mistake, Jesus never claimed to be some sort of good prophet, moral teacher. He said, I am God. Me and my Father are one. Are you living with the anticipation that he will again return to this earth? Are you preparing with the same level of preparation as the 1950s home economic wife preparing for her husband? It's a big deal for you to answer that question because Hebrews 9.28, the author writes, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He ain't going to deal with sin this time. He did it the first time. What he's doing when he comes back is to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Write this down and we're done. My anticipation, it should lead to, generate, immediate action. My eager anticipation for Christ's return, it should generate an immediate action in how I live for him today. See, your age isn't an excuse. Growing old has nothing to do with giving up. A lack of clarity in your life is not an excuse. 
Because God will confirm his will through his people, which means you need to get around to his people for more than an hour on a Sunday. And, and you, you need to figure out how this eager anticipation for Christ's return, how that should generate an immediate action in how you're living day in and day out. Don't be lulled to sleep because for thousands of years we've been promised by God that his son is going to return. No, you need to start preparing and anticipating with great eager anticipation for Christ's return. Don't end up like the people who were around Anna and Simeon and we don't even know their names because they forgot the story that Jesus was about to come to them. So look right at me. We know Christ will return. We don't know when. Are you prepared for when he does? That's the question that's before you this Christmas. We got to be like uh, Norman Dale and the Hickory Huskers because we're going to run the picket fence at them, but we can't get caught watching the paint dry. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Ain't nobody know about the Hickory Huskers anymore and the Hoosiers. And we're trying to do it. Like one person in here knows what I'm talking about. Bad example. But God's asked us to do something and we can't be caught watching the paint dry. We need to start living our lives in expectation and anticipation for God's return to this planet. So every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for the truth of Scripture, the sacrifice that your son Jesus has made that he was born to the Virgin Mary because he needed to live a perfect life and no sin could be in him. And because he lived a perfect life and died a death that was meant for me, but because he rose from the dead, God, I can be made new. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. As we continue to pray, I really want you to reflect on what was spoken today. This idea that growing old has nothing to do with giving up. Where is God challenging you in your life? That you've become complacent. Where do you need to start training and leading and modeling? This idea that he's going to confirm his will through you is a big deal. Who are you speaking life into? You know, if Anna and Simeon, had they not spoken life into Mary and Joseph, prophesying, Mary, this gift of your son is going to cause great anguish in your soul. Don't you think that when Mary was standing before the cross of Jesus, looking up at her son, fully realizing the sacrifice that he was making, don't you think she pointed back to these words, Simeon? she felt that anguish in her soul. That sword was piercing her just like the nails were piercing her son. But it confirmed in her who Jesus really was. And it gave her strength. You can be that blessing in somebody else's life. You can speak encouragement. You can say, no, I believe in you and the gifts that God has given you parents, maybe God's challenging you right now just to say that to your kids. I believe in who you are. You need to know that I believe in each one of you and that God has a purpose for your life. And you're going to do great things for God. You also need to understand that you need to start living your life in eager anticipation for the coming that Jesus returned.
live this righteous and devout life. Start taking seriously your day and your day out actions. God, help us fully comprehend this good news. And if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't put their trust in you, God, I'm asking you to do what only you can do and save their soul. Let them acknowledge in your heart, in their heart, that they believe in you, in your son Jesus, in his death and resurrection. Just in your own heart, say, God, forgive my sin. Make me new. And God will do that for you. God, thank you for this gift of new life. Help each of us today be one step closer to you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.